I'm so happy I asked this question. You know, one could have probably a day allocated for each of our sessions, and I feel so rushed moving from session to session. I really don't want to do this. Uh, but we have another brilliant session that is waiting for us. Uh, I have uh, Gautam uh, here, uh, and he's going to be conversing with uh, Vishwa. Uh, the name of the session is Beginning and You uh, with the Mahabharata. Uh, <laughs> and those of you who have experienced Vishwa and Joydeep uh, uh, at you know the Delhi four-day workshop, you know would know uh, you know what can be expected out of this. But I don't know whether we can do a repeat of that kind of a profundity in a short time. But uh, I hope you know we will probably touch upon some new things uh, today as well. Uh, Gautam, please. Thank you. Uh... Thank you for inviting me. Uh, since this is a retrospective of Vishwa's work, I'll begin with an anecdote. A few years ago, Vishwa was holding a workshop on the Mahabharat and I got an invitation. I was reluctant. Who can teach me the Mahabharat? I thought. I, I have read almost every book written out here. I know the story inside out. I know all the plots, the subplots. I know the politics. Uh, it flows in my blood, uh, sits in my bones, my soul resonates with it. What's an academic, any academic, going to add to my knowledge or understanding of this great text? So uh, luckily, my wife forced me to attend this workshop. And the biggest learning I got from Vishwa then was that the Mahabharata is a voyage, not a destination, as every session with him shows. Uh, all of you sitting out here, when you come for the next session, you will realize that this is only a prelude to what you will then see. And I can't thank uh, Vishwa enough without extending my gratitude to Harikiranji. Uh, Harikiranji, can you just uh, come uh, on video? Because uh, Harikiran is the hard and soft infrastructure provider for all things Indic today. Uh, I thank you, Hariji, the bottom of my heart. You are a force multiplier and we are deeply, deeply grateful. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much. So I'm going to run through this session, uh, which I see mostly as a Q&A. I have a few questions and our participants have lots. So I'm going to reduce my questions and allow participants to ask them more. Many of the questions that I wanted to ask have been already answered. So I would request... Um, so I, I'm going to change tack a bit. Uh, the only request I have for Vishwa, and uh, in case he wants to lob the question at Joy, that uh, please be uh, uh, precise, very short, so that we can get as many questions and as many insights from you as possible in as short a time that we have. Uh, my first question begins with this. Many Indians look to the Veda as the foundation of Hinduism. But in fact, most practices of Hinduism, the chants, the rituals, the pujas are drawn from and based on the Mahabharata. The best stories of Hinduism, the churning of the ocean, for instance, are from the Mahabharata. And then there is the verse in the Mahabharata that says it's the fifth Veda. You have consciously chosen the Mahabharata as the base text of your expression. Is it the stories, the politics, 
the several expressions of dharma and let's forget what the verses say do you believe that the mahabharat is heavier than all the four vedas combined how <laughs> okay uh good question uh in fact it is the only question <laughs> uh why the mahabharata for i had read uh you know i have a bachelor's in various religions uh in philosophy i studied religion throughout my life i teach courses in christian theology uh saint augustine is my favorite meister eckhart um <clears throat> but uh my coming into uh mahabharata was through the greeks so in my phd i had studied parmenides and parmenides actually writes in a uh, in a hexameter verse which is uh which he borrows from or which is similar to homer and there is a narrative literary format to it and i was very uh influenced by that and when i saw that homer studies as we talked with us back to the beginning here as ed and i discussed uh the christian christianization of europe occluded uh certain aspects of homer so i came to the mahabharata through that um not as a religion not as a but purely uh, philosophically academically i entered uh mahabharata studies um when i first read the mahabharata it seemed a little jumbled <laughs> too many stories and i didn't know what the meaning of the stories was and so on uh until i came to the story of of uh utanka Utanka is a boy who has been sent to fetch earrings for his guru's wife as dakshina etc and on the way he meets someone uh who's who tells him um you know eat the dung of my bull so this translates into bullshit he eats it and then uh i looked up wendy doniger what did she say and she said that it was the practice in that ashrama to do so and then i uh came to an, the, the then takshaka steals the earrings goes into the underworld and there's a big man on a big horse and utanka says help me and the man on the horse says blow into this horse's ass and he blows and out of the horse's mouth comes fumes that overpower the snake world and he gets his earrings back you cannot imagine what i was thinking at that time i already knew what wendy is going to say dirty girl so i um i kept reading and on the next page he goes and asks his guru all these weird things happened what is their significance and the guru says that was the sacrificial fire you blew into this the man was indra who's the and he's a friend of mine he helped you blah 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 but it dawned on me suddenly that the mahabharata was not only a work of literature with 
with a sense of humor, naturally. I mean, come on. It's not as if somebody writing that is not going to giggle and say, you know, blowing into a horse's ass, I think, is a permanent feature of human comedy. So uh, I was amazed and I began to see a certain textual self-consciousness, a certain interpretive awareness, a kind of brilliant literary project uh, that has been put together in such a way that unlike other texts which require interpretations from outside, the Mahabharata contains the wisdom and its own interpretation. So I discovered that the Mahabharata is not just a text, it's a program. It's a program in humanities. <laughs> and you get everything in it. So I began to, I mean, every day the text became more and more uh, brilliant. At every point was something would be said. For example, my latest discovery is just before uh, Rajasuya is performed by Yudhishthira, right? Um, Narada comes and tells Yudhishthira, oh, by the way, the highest world is Harishchandra, and your dad ain't there. <laughs> so, so Yudhishthira says, I will perform the Rajasuya. And if you, and I've been studying the Aitareya Brahmana, and it evoked, Harishchandra's story comes in the Aitareya Brahmana in, in connection with the Rajasuya. And there, Narada already is the one who tells. Harishchandra, to perform a sacrifice for the sake of a son. All the way into book 18, Mahabharata will say, will re-mention Harishchandra. So when Yudhishthira is going to heaven, the, the, the angel or whatever, the divine being says, come, come, higher and higher are your worlds, the worlds of Harishchandra. So that little detail from the Aitareya Brahmana has been worked into an elaborate plot issue. And over 18 parva, well, 16 parvas, it has not lost sight of that minute detail. If you look at nay science and how Joy and I take up every objection and put every footnote that mentions every relevant point, we are obsessive compulsives. So for obsessive compulsives like this, the Mahabharata is like therapy. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's the only book. Like I read any other book and I feel, you know, it's not, it doesn't have that depth. So now I can answer your questions. Yes, in Hinduism, I, it is my interpretation, studied interpretation, but an interpretation. The Vedas have been handed over to us through the Mahabharata. The, even the Upanishads, some would say, would be lost to us if Shankaracharya had not commented on them. Who would have been reading the Upanishads today? And the Upanishads are the, only, are the main portion of the Veda that is still, you know, contemporarily valid. And Shankaracharya felt that the uh, that you know 
Gita is the essence of all Upanishads and that forms a part of the Mahabharata. So from theory, from praxis of Hinduism, Mahabharata is the primary text. It is the original text. It also gives rise to various Itihasa Purana traditions. And I uh, therefore think that if the Vedas are lost and if all the Puranas are lost, out of Mahabharata alone, all aspects of contemporary Hinduism can be created. And therefore, for me, uh, I agree with the Rishis who have weighed the Mahabharata against the other four Vedas and found it to be heavier, heavier because what was best in them is included in the Mahabharata. And what was not so important, I think Hinduism itself has forgotten mentioned a footnote so uh, just for the other who may not have read uh, this book I just want to tell you that uh, this is one of the most uh, this one and, and the next one uh, is one of the most profound scholarships that I have seen in fact uh, you mentioned an end notes I'm going to go back to my favorite end note which is uh, of the chapter called the search for the original Gita and the end note begins here it goes all the way here in the next page. And you can see the kind of hard work that has gone into this book. So again, uh, since you mentioned it, I thought I'd, I'd, I'd pull out and show off my favorite end note. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 I want to ask a related question. Uh, you meant, uh, sorry, uh, Krishna, give me a minute. Uh, a related question, which is that one of the most profound lines that you gave at the workshop and several others since then was that uh, the text is the universe and universe the text. Yes. Uh, so it's like an addendum to this question and uh, the text being the Mahabharata. So can you elaborate on that? Yeah. There is some the self-consciousness, I had talked to you about Mahabharata, that it is aware of its brilliance and its uh, how it wishes to be interpreted is quite, uh, let's take that to the next level. There is this whole notion of dramatic staging, which forms the part of Mahabharata's literary structure. So all the gods descend into it, all the asuras descend into it, there's a big fight. Uh, then when they return, some go to heavens. They go wherever they come from. And then um, just before that, all the women are crying for their dead husbands. And Vyasa summons them all from the Ganga for a final bow down. So there is a great sort of like, a, like on a stage. So the staged characteristic of the Mahabharata was just amazing to me. So as just as I would watch a play, I can watch a play. And, but in the case of Mahabharata, I could enter that level, that dimension, that literary space opened up by the Mahabharata and Brahman can descend or the gods can descend into that space and create an experience in which I can be with the gods. And it is achieved purely through literary uh, brilliance. And I'm not just enjoying the gods. I'm not just saying, please rub my back, Indra. So it is 
it is filled with knowledge it is filled with knowledge of dharma it is filled with a kind of vidyananda kind of aesthetic delight right with the rasas and it is also filled with questions about what does it really mean to exist so sachitananda brahman manifests in the mahabharata on every page and i can experience that so when i have experienced that and i look at the world the world looks like a bad book look at the characters read the newspapers look at the stories right and then i uh that advaitic thing that shankaracharya was trying to teach us that the world is mithya the mahabharata does it so much more brilliantly it's like i turn to the world and i'm like ah and I go back into the mahabharata so uh so the mahabharata is so consistent with the advaita teaching and praxis and meditation i mean reading the mahabharata is meditating on advaita so that's what i mean that in the text beginning with brahma's creation the brahmanda to the to the pralaya to the changing of the yugas all these things contained in the mahabharata uh Uh, shows that mahabharata is not just a book it is a kind of a plane of being in which uh, the world manifests phenomenally so the distinction between the text and the distinction between the external reality is erased just for example by the character of yasa who comes in and out right he's supposed to be the author he's also the procreator that's what i mean Krishnan, you wanted to come in on uh, something uh, uh, quickly, please, because so that we can. Yeah. So I just want to say that you know, Vishwas' essay on Adi Parvan and the deliberate multiple beginnings of the Mahabharata, uh, for someone like me who has been uh, studying with traditional acharyas and who has a great deal of interest in the Mahabharata as a Sanskritic text, uh, <laughs> that essay for me opened uh, so many doors. So, in addition to the very careful scholarship um, that that has gone into books like the Nee Science and so forth, what I really admire about Vishwa is his ability to uh, creatively enter a text, which calls for creativity. The text calls for you to be uh, open and flexible and willing to go where the text is taking you, and he is able to do that. And that, to me, is the heart of a poet. So, he's a poet as well as a scholar, and for me, that uh, that is. Truly transformed the way I understand Mahabharata and how I am reading it. So I am very, very grateful for that. I just want to say that. In fact, he he used to say that you need to read the Mahabharata slowly and carefully. When you read the Nee Science, you can see that it's been written slowly and carefully. I'll come to the next question now. We see the interest of Germans in India through their translation and analysis of Indian work. The narrative set by them powers a continuing academic trail on the Mahabharata through the academic process which you have elaborated your work exposes their work to be shallow that they, they tried to debunk indian texts and you have given a whole uh, uh, bibliography of which um, german uh, indologists attempted what and with what uh, ridiculous and shallow basis now that you've made your point on the critique 
would you be thinking about creating a new narrative around the mahabharata or let me rephrase it in the middle of this retrospective of your work what prospective expectations can we have going forward i think that the mahabharata is a useful way in which to look the in india or in the whole world the politics is either we are leftists or we are rightists and left and right are leftovers of hegel right i mean uh those categories are not even working anymore right? you don't know where trump stands you don't know where anybody stands you don't know where people are standing so uh in such a case let us look at the mahabharata i mean they have heard so many generalizations and so on which are just factually untrue take for example the caste system it is a continuing problem in india at least in the sense that if in the sense of some people using privilege uh, of brahmanism so let's grant that for argument's sake the mahab and they say oh hindus were these people were not allowed to read the upanishad the mahabharata is a stri shudra veda it is a veda meant written specifically for women and all people we talk about reformation in europe but in hinduism the mahabharata marks a kind of reformation that is the most egalitarian ever so what caste system can you talk about after the mahabharata says the whole of the veda is put into the fifth veda which is meant for everybody that's number one number two look at heaven there will always be a privileged few who will get into heaven whatever the heaven is and however you come to that go to that heaven whether it is allah yahweh indra whoever but mahabharata says all those are stations of prestige moksha is not what a beautiful thing to learn to see the singular not as a rung on the ladder to climb on to someone else take a look at humanities nobody knows anymore what humanities have become they've all become identity politics and endless digestives of protest of identity versus identity it is like humanities have become like random billiard balls on a pool table and no one is hitting just the balls are just hitting each other so yes we have to address women's issues we have to address issues of empowerment of the but not in this way let's see how the mahabharata says the mahabharata says dana dharma or charity is higher than tapas that you should act and do your best but only for the sake of loka sangraha for the welfare of the world not for myself not for my egos look at the central problem of modernity the modern subject see how the mahabharata has dissected it where is there any future for humanities except we follow in one form or another some of the ideas explored by the mahabharata literature wise we are now 
coming to when I started Mahabharata studies. Oh, how wise were this were my professors telling me, listen, brown boy, you know, you people think Vyasa wrote Mahabharata, but one person did not write was Vyasa historical. But if you now look at the sense of authorship and agency in the Mahabharata, characters come in and go. Characters become authors. I mean, it's not just that Vyasa as an author enters the text and creates characters, but characters exit the text, such as Shuka, and characters become authors by telling other narratives, like Markandeya. So the labyrinth of a topos noetos or a, a, a labyrinth of intellectual experience that, is, that the Mahabharata is, one can easily be lost in it and learn so much from it and also have this sense of the jiva, the singularity, so that even if that's, that, that is the meaning of the talking frog or the snake that tells you a story and so on. Mahabharata is not just beyond deconstructing gender and social systems. It has deconstructed heaven. It has deconstructed species. So I don't know what DNA they're going to find about the Aryans. There are talking frogs in the Mahabharata. We're losing time, Vishwa. I'm going to jump to the next question. So between uh, Suptankar, Vivek Debroy, and Joydeep and your work, there are uh, three pillars uh, of the Mahabharat that, that are now completely in place. We have the critical edition, we have its English translation, and we have its profound analysis. And yet we see very little research papers coming from India on the Mahabharat. I would have thought that by now several libraries would be full of papers, monographs, books, uh, maybe even videos uh, from India written by Indians on the Mahabharat. What's lacking here? Is it the rigor to delve into scholarship? Are we too busy just fighting? Is it lack of funding? Is it lack of peer acceptance? You have explored some of these earlier, but if you could just encapsulate this quickly um, as to why is new research, despite all the pillars being in place, First of all, the good news. Okay, first of all, the good news. The good news is that the good news is that Mahabharata was always there, even to this day. And grandmothers have been telling the story to their grandchildren. Imagine an educational system which is not based on the professorate, but is based on your grandma. You know, not you don't even need to have separate baby care. <laughs> you know, uh, that is how the Mahabharata has flourished through the temples, through art. Krishna can tell you elaborately how the Gita is just encrusted on all the temples. The very architectural plans reveal this, etc., etc., etc. As for academic study, all these issues of peers and westernized and easternized are so are blah, 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 in the end. Because you read a Bhashya by Shankaracharya, he outdoes the nay science for every bit he gives you the proof, he gives you the thing, he gives you the argument, he gives you the support, he gives you the citations and go and so on. So the Indians have had it, they still can have it. It is probably a question of a temporary socio-economic 
political landscape um and also some political will i mean suptankar huh may i jump in yeah i feel i am jumping in and interrupting wish because i feel passionately about this um maybe 8 or 9 years back when wish and i were really struggling um a friend of mine who is the only person i know who has ever been as well read as wish i very angrily turned to him and said you know is this fair why does wish have to start struggle so hard is that fair and he turned to me in a very quiet tone said i will not lie to you that it is harder for him if there was someone doing for christianity what vishwa is doing for hinduism he would be heading a 30 million dollar institute and they would be throwing money at him and multiplying the publications and training the students and placing the students and sending them out in this missionary sense and he has had it harder and over time i realized the wisdom of that because all our publication if you see the shelf behind wish and you see the shelf behind him it's been this two man job with these books um you know and and the computer and typing and printing and publishing ourselves and there has not been the institutional support that that could have multiplied this into you know as gotham once 100 research papers I met a friend of mine in Berlin she is a professor at Dartmouth and uh, in Jewish studies and I met her with some of her friends and they were all Jewish and all in academia and when they started talking I realized they have a common base that they are referring to they're within western academia but they're talking about summers in Jerusalem learning Hebrew at this school do you know so and so oh he moved and said where's the equivalent hindu network when i or you meet up can we say oh yes we learned sanskrit together there and i am so and so student and i come from this matha and so on it's not possible the networks that the old boys networks in india that people refer to might be doon or sanawar or you know stephens or so on name me one school where the intellectual elite of india are coming from who have been trained in the tradition trained in western thought now you will say i'm being reactionary and saying they've not trained in the indian tradition but we have excellent western schools we do not indian western education is a pastiche we do not teach them western philosophy either so you know that that intellectual tradition has to be rebuilt and uh, maybe not in our lifetimes we'll be sort of two two people who do our work and go but in 100 years i hope there is something and there have been people before us there's been terak there's been suktankar there's been excellent people who've done this work uh, kane for example the five volume history of dharma shastra nothing like that has ever been done at bori afterwards or before right you could close up bori today and nothing would be lost except a few people who are trading gifts of with western academics saying you invite me i'll invite you let's spend our mutual government's money and both of us get our cvs padded a little but the work is not there anymore okay that's all passion okay. but i want to change the question now okay uh vishwa you keep saying that we need to approach the mahabharat uh not with the hermeneutics of suspicion but the hermeneutics of faith perhaps hermeneutics of respect define that wouldn't that apply to every uh text yeah and uh, chandogya has the thing that shraddha adds uh 
strength to all our endeavors. And I would not say faith. I would say, I would keep the word shraddha. Yeah, all I mean is the text is shimmers. It is, it looks like something very banal. For example, the dialogue between Draupadi and Satyabhama. Satyabhama has, is, is one of Krishna's many wives asking Draupadi, who has five husbands, how do you keep them all happy? So, but if you continually look at and read and try to understand, look at some commentators or even just thinking and saying, what is this making sense as, as we're doing slow reading, as I told you, uh, a lot comes out of it. Just last week, I'm teaching a graduate level course on Vanaparvan, Mahabharata 2 at Hindu University of America. Students have been unpacking. I mean, I have the most excellent students. They've been unpacking the text and more stuff comes out. So for me, Shraddha means Vishwasa. Vishwasa in the correctness, or at least that the text is not a meaningless chaos. So with that attitude, if I read and I read slowly, that, that's what it means. Now I can also read the text with a prejudice. I want to show that it is the, I don't know, most corrupt text. Right. There the Shraddha is not there. And I will find, that's the greatness of Mahabharata. If you want to hang yourself, it will give you a, a very long rope, two well-polished guns, a little trap door for you to stand on, and also eight different vials of hemlock. But it's up to you. That's what I mean. But uh, in all of this, I think that the, the, what is lacking is um, a certain sense of pride. That you are who you are. If you are a Muslim, you're a Muslim. Be, be happy with it. If you're a Hindu, you're a Hindu. Be happy with it. And stop questioning other people and stop pretending that the Muslim has to say it's okay for you to be a Hindu. The Hindu has to say to the Muslim, he yeah, it's okay to be. There's no need for all of this. If somebody wants to put a donkey on their altar and worship it, so be it. So... There's so much thing called interfaith dialogue and has not led, as you can see, to understanding of any culture. It has been a largely Christian diatribe, not a dialogue. Okay, I'm going to be a, a little personal here. You say that you're not interested in politics, you're not interested in current affairs, you don't care about China. Isn't the term non-political academic an oxymoron? Is it even possible to be non-political? For instance, and all of us in this room must have faced it at some point or the other, since you write on the Mahabharata, you get classified as right-wing, as you mentioned earlier, the Sanghi, effectively a four-letter word. Whether the text itself is a strongly, a, a, a Mahabharata is a political treatise uh, uh, at its soul. And yet you say you are not political. How can you, its most profound scholar, be non-political? Uh, first, a biographical detail. My professor, Raina Sherman, who I adored, uh, he, used, he very smilingly one day told me, 
if only you were political, you would be one of the world's greatest philosophers. I think at that time I was eating some sweet, <laughs> a piece of cake, I was just, and I paid no attention. But I do not mean political in the sense of taking sides and arguing for identities and playing the game. That is also necessary. Raja Dharma is also necessary. And there are some people who, who only those who are skilled at it should do it. Yes, I am not. I didn't skilled. mean it in that way either. I meant it in, in, in your understanding and your engagement with the world. I'm disgusted with I'm disgusted with the term. Yeah, I'm disgusted with the intellectual uh, statements of the left and right because they they seem to be you know sort of confused and I do not have anything to add to the left or to the right. For example, Marxism. Marx does not have a theory of desire, individual desire. So how can you ever have a political system that does not take into account desire on part of the citizen? Because in the end, isn't that the problem to Marxism that desire is not controlled? So they're, from the left, I have problems. From the right, I have problems. What I'm interested in is a different kind of politics. It's a different kind of politics that happens on the Kurukshetra battlefield when Arjuna asked Krishna, Katam Bhishma Maham Samkhye How can I kill these people on the opposite camp? You know, it's that kind of grown-upness that is necessary in politics. And unfortunately, uh, not only does the right wing think I'm left wing, the left wing thinks I'm Sanghi, etc. In the end, nobody will invite me <laughs> anywhere, you know, in any camp. So that's what I mean by politics. Be but in the sense of a politics of being, meaning being who I am and being able to say what I think I should say, and framing it intellectually and feeling the political responsibility, whatever the cost may be to say it. In that sense, I'm very political. In Hannah Arendt's sense of the word, that, you, that the politics of thinking is, is, is political life. There I am, I am political. But in terms of affiliations and institutional politics, uh, I lack the gene, <laughs> back to genes. I just lack the gene. And I, usually I, I let somebody else, you know, run the show. And I, I just say whatever is okay, is okay. But of course, oh, if somebody miss, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. And yeah. here I must say oh, that the Mahabharata. As a scholar of the Mahabharata. So let's forget uh, incidents or uh, individuals and the academia politics for a while. But now as a philosopher, what do you think is going on? Uh, what would you advise future young scholars in and around the Mahabharata to do? Uh, what learnings can you give them so that they don't have to face the same slope as you did? First of all, they don't have to face that slope anymore because the work we have done has, has dismantled 
the arguments from the, that side. So when they write papers, nobody's going to come back and say, oh, the Mahabharata, Oldenburg said Mahabharata is a monstrous chaos. They just have to say, and Lurin Bakshi show that this is not the case. So it is easier for them. For them to not look at themselves in the eyes of someone else and go with what is in their heart and to be true to that and to be willing to study and, and make a contribution for that. That's what Indians always did. That's what Tilak did. That is what Shankaracharya did. That is, and the, and the political landscape keep changing, cultures keep changing, but what works ultimately is the Socratic way that Socrates would not budge. He, he will say, okay, well, whatever you want, but I'm not going to change my mind unless you persuade me with reason and I'm going to be a philosopher till the bitter end. I'm going to be a philosopher till the bitter end and I'm sure a lot of young kids out there cannot wait to study the Mahabharata, cannot wait to become experts in it, cannot wait to, you know, pull their, put their entire breath and soul into a good project. So to those kids, I wish you all the best. So Srinivas, I think we are running short of time. I just have one more question. Do you want to bring in some other question? I'll ask my question last. So please go ahead and ask. Please go ahead and ask. Okay. So last question, uh, Vishwa, and maybe Joy as well. What does it mean to be a philosopher, particularly in general? And what does it mean to be a philosopher with Indian moorings? Shall I take it? The, the answer I, I will give is to be a philosopher is to be concerned with the virtue of your own soul. And at no price to ever betray the virtue of your soul, believing that the soul is immortal, and capable of suffering many good things and many bad things. This is a quasi quote or a paraphrase from Plato's Republic, but it is also the principle underlying Dharma. And it is uh, also a paraphrase of things Yudhishthira says in the Mahabharata, that at no price must you betray what your Dharma is. Because, and, and this is not just Yudhishthira, it is Vyasa also, right? Saying that Jiva is immortal and all these other things, they are not so. So not to abandon dharma, knowing that it is only dharma that provides the foundation is what the philosopher does. And the so philosopher, does a warrior. So does a, so, a trader. Yes. And let me, and since this is the last question, let me end with a personal statement of what I found so appealing in Hinduism uh, from the perspective of modern architecture. These people did not build high-speed railways and they did not build high-rise buildings but they did work out to the last detail, a system so exquisitely based on dharma, regulating every aspect of the ego, working out all the relations, giving you a structure and a framework and saying that dharma is not the privilege of some wealthy people or some upper caste. Dharma belongs to everyone. Everyone contributes here in this village or in this society. Everyone has a role to play. And all of us make progress at the same time in the measure we do our work. It's a staggering thought. You know, it's, it's what Vishwa and I live by. 
are, are there wealthier lifestyles? Yes. Is there more pleasure? Yes. Are there easier lifestyles, you know, where the shoulder is not hurting from writing all day? Probably. But if we don't make these dharmic obligations, these offerings to the pitras and to the rishis, um, you know, there is a loss to society. So this notion that the individual sacrifices himself for a greater good, not as the Christian sacrifice of one man for everyone's benefit, but everyone for that one man's benefit, it's an inversion of the Christian idea. And that's what's brilliant about Hinduism. All of you are called upon to make the sacrifice for the individual. That's all. Done. Vishwa. What does it mean to be a philosopher? To be me? <laughs> I don't know. When I was small, I remember that there was a rain, monsoon rain, and water was just running. And I two leaves were going in the water, and they kind of clung to each other. And this is the kind of child I was. Um, I thought, oh, they're friends. And then there was a puddle and they got separated and one went into the gutter and I thought they will never meet again. And I was depressed. <laughs> so I think philosophy comes from empathy and trying to see and make the world a better place. In that it, it is also political, but at some point, you also realize that the world is not completely fixable. That's when you become a vigilante, a, a filled with anger. So conquering that anger. So first there should be karma for doing something good. And then when it doesn't work out, you should not have anger and take it out on people. And as you become thoughtful and thoughtful, it grows into a kind of wisdom. And you're able to make your contribution and then you, 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 you just let it go. And this letting go has been for me what philosophy is. I want to know everything, but I also want to not edit out the tragic parts, the, uh, the sad parts. And Mahabharata puts it all together for me. I, I, I am with Draupadi when her kids are killed. I am with Gandhari when, she's, when her heart is tormented between a son and a, 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 a better sense of what she ought to do. So accepting that life is tragic and painful, still being resolutely thoughtful and nonviolent, is what philosophy means to me. Thank you very much, Vishwa. Joy. Over to you, Srinivas. Thank you, uh, Gautam. Uh, fantastic session. I'm so glad uh, Joy planned this to be in the end. <laughs> this is such a great way to end this uh, four hour uh, event. Uh, you know, we can go on, but uh, I still remember, uh, you know, three to four years ago, I think. Uh, I used to read papers of Vishwa and Joydeep, uh, you know, specifically about what they used to write about higher criticism. And I found that nobody else would, uh, you know, give such arguments uh, against the Indologists. You know, uh, uh, it seems so simple and straightforward. You know, some stories are being built with absolutely no basis whatsoever. And nobody was calling them out. You know, nobody could simply say, hey, 
your so-called higher criticism is actually just a bunch of bullshit that you're building. It has absolutely no basis in any logic or evidence. You know, that simple uh, pointing out of what is happening in Indology, nobody has done. And I then, you know, got to know about them, uh, you know, that they were actually giving a lecture in Delhi uh, somewhere when I was in the middle of another conference on Abhinava Gupta. I rushed to this uh, you know, small event that was being conducted and I listened to them in person. I was, my mind blows blown. <laughs> I thought, oh my God, you know, how come I never experienced this, right? And since then, you know, every, everything has been a learning. You know, I keep learning and I've learned so much in this uh, session as well. Now, I still remember uh, the four-day workshop uh, Indic Academy conducted in Delhi. I still vividly remember how Joydeep was talking about the concept of yajna, you know, the cosmic scream. I still remember how we described it. You know, the hair stood on its no you know, uh, the, the body, you know, stood on its ends. And I still remember how uh, you know, Vishwa talks about, you know, how Mahabharata addresses moksha dharma and pravritti dharma, nivritti dharma. You know, and, and his diagram that he puts together. You know, this. Uh, <laughs> Recently, you know, somebody was bringing up these questions about, uh, you know, what is the relationship between pravritti dharma and nivritti dharma, and you know, what is the whole purpose of moksha, and you know, how are, you know, what is the purpose of moksha in the human society? And then I was thinking, okay, well, you listen to Vishwa, you know, and then he'll tell you why Mahabharata addresses this and this very problem, and how Bhagavad Gita, you know, addresses this completely, uh, you know, um, so. Uh, you know, all good things have to come to an end, but I'm glad that we're actually uh, closing this on time. Thank you, Gautam, <laughs> though you didn't get the, uh, the full time uh, that was promised. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Ed. Uh, you know, That's I will look forward right. to the publication of your book. Uh, and, you know, hopefully we'll have, Indic Academy will have a session with you on the book uh, when it's out. And uh, Harikiran Garu, would you like to say a few words yeah, before yeah. we end? No, I just want to, uh, of course, uh, thank you for curating this so well. I see Krishnan, uh, thank you, Krishnan, uh, Ed, and uh, Gautam, uh, Joy, and Vishwa. Uh, but uh, my uh, larger point, um, as somebody who's been, um, what shall I say, struggling, actually very, very struggling. You see, having the intent and having the resources, and then I'm struggling. I want to promote them. I want to make them mainstream. I want more and more scholars to get inspired by them. And I struggle every day. I struggle. And the reason I struggle is because people are wasting uh, their time on social media, on WhatsApp, dissing this and that. People have to devote themselves to them. Here I am. Here I am willing to give money, willing to give time and saying they are the people that you should emulate. And you are wasting time on WhatsApp, about dating, about some other stuff. What is it? What are all these scholars? 168 people are listening. I want to know how many of you are going to reach out to me, write to me at hari at indica.org.in and say, I want to become like Vishwad Luri. I want to become like Joy, Joy Deep Bhakti. Please write to me and I will back you up. Whatever resources you want, I will back you up. But please stop wasting time. This is my appeal to all of you. <laughs> it is not, they don't get created just like that. They are Bhagavans. They are Bhagavan Vishwa. I see Bhagavan in Vishwa. Do you realize that? Do you realize that he is Bhagavan? And he is there. 
and they're not learning from him. They're wasting time. What kind of nonsense? So please, I appeal to all of you, whoever it, go back to your families, go back to your children, go back and say, I want my son, I want myself to emulate myself and I want them to become a Vishwa. I want them to become like Joydeep and come to me. I Today I'm telling you there are enough Hindu entrepreneurs who can write a check. They, I saw some appeals going on. There's no need for an appeal. There are enough people out there, but we want research scholars who have the intent, who have the dedication, who have the Shraddha. That is important. So please, thank you again, once again, Vishwa. Thank you, Joydeep. I am making this impassionate appeal because I am, as an, I am observing this for the last five years. Now I've decided that I am only going to selectively concentrate on a few gurus. I, if you, I see them as gurus. I see them as Bhagwan. I see yesterday for one and a half hours, I spoke to Balu and he was telling me, I don't know why I spoke for so, for so long for you. There's something you're doing, right? One and a half hours, I had a one-to-one -one with Balu. All these people are there. There are so many rishis. They're all modern day rishis. And we are all wasting time. Frivolous discussions, frivolous discussions on emails. Nothing positive that comes out of it. So I appeal to all of you. Please, please, please treat them as rishis, treat them and say, if you want to protect our dharma, if you want to do it, please follow them, emulate them. Resources are not a constraint and they will be taken care of them. Do not worry about them. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. We Hare cannot Kare. end without Isha and Trisha singing us something. <laughs> what do you want to sing? <laughs> want to sing something? <laughs> yeah, the... Right. Yeah, very quickly. Um, so, uh, Vishwa, um, uh, so there was something that uh, you had started, you know, about the uh, the, uh, the Smriti project. You know, I think you know probably, I maybe Joy, could you quickly make a small statement about it? Maybe if there are others interested, you know, who could join, I could send an email to all the people who have attended this session. Uh, with the uh, link to join the Smriti project. Uh, it's not very active, but probably, you know, uh, you could uh, uh, revive that. So Smriti project is a Google group that we started. It's to share research. Um, Srinivas is right that it's not very active. And the reason it's not very active is we do not encourage little, uh, you know, um, tweets or something about something political or bones have been discovered here or here's my latest theory of how to date the death of Bhishma. That is not serious research. Um, so actually the kind of work that Smriti project was envisioned to do was there's an Advaita list that is also among the many lists I know that one is the most serious and by passionate seekers of the truth. So Smriti is for something like that. And we do need to revive it. So if Srinava sends out, it could be as simple as a daily reading. Everyone write, reads a little episode of the Mahabharata every day and comments on it. And that is sufficient to get study started. Um, at one level, yes, there needs to be institutional support. But at another level, do not believe that the task of study and research has been handed over to the university. 200 PhDs in a university will do nothing for your jnana. And without your jnana, your moksha is not assured. So everyone has to, in Hinduism, be simultaneously a Brahmana, Kshatriya, Vaishya, because we all have to pay our bills, and a Shudra in that we have to serve others. So we have to be all four for ourselves. 
And this is something we miss, right? That the 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 greatest literature is not written by PhDs in English literature departments. Uh, the greatest poetry, the greatest creativity, like people who who make the best movies, are not teaching in universities in the film department. Uh, so also for all humanities, I mean, you know, look at even the research Joy and I did. We did it outside the, uh, I mean, of course we are, it, well, we did it outside the institutional set of privileges uh, that the university accords. Um, just, I, I just want to show you what goes into uh, research because I think there are just a few of you left here. So. This is a book on the Isenheim altarpiece. It's an art history book. It is this thin. Uh, it is not, it, most of it is images, photo after photo, so very little text. Now I will show you in the preface, all these are institutions that paid her money to write that book. It makes a huge difference, doesn't it? So it, 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 it shows uh, that if you select a few students and support those students, you don't have to pay for the whole institutional structure. Even if somebody paid half a million dollars or a million dollars to Harvard, the chances that they'll hire someone that would even be sympathetic are zero. The chances that they will hire somebody, even if they are not sympathetic, meritorious, are even less because hiring is simply uh, nepotism in universities. So it's, I think you should, um, we should rethink and we should not think that only in university can there be a renaissance. A renaissance can be outside as well, everywhere. Things like what uh, Krishnan helps me do, uh, Joy and me, things like uh, what Indic Academy is doing. Uh, Ed Butler is an independent scholar and he has written this wonderful book and it will be published and it will be very well received as well. So, you know, uh, all right, so I am a little exhausted. <laughs> this is this is all. I'm a, I I I know that I I I can be very dramatic and uh, social appearing, but it also puts a great deal of strain on me. So I'm just going to go lay in bed Let's now. Let's end with the shloka and then we close. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. Trisha actually is having a class right now. Huh? Yeah, okay, so then why don't we just do a prayer? Just should, should I do a prayer? Yes, please. Make sure you do it. Thank you. Thank okay, you. I'm out of here. Thank, Thank you. you.